second message in our series on prayer entitled The Priority of Prayer. And today we're in the book of Colossians. And so you'll want to turn there about uh, middle right in your New Testament. You get there to uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You can remember that Gentiles eat pork chops. So the C is Colossians. Do we tend to get lost in those books, don't remember the order? So that's how I remember it. Anyway, we're in Colossians 1. We'll be reading verses 3 through 20, but then we'll be focusing uh, specifically on verses 9 through 14 uh, today. But let's go ahead and, and read this. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 20. The Apostle Paul is writing, obviously, to the church of Colossae, and uh, he is sending them this letter. And he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we have come to sit under the teaching of your word, and so we ask that you would enable us to come with interest and attentiveness, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us the knowledge of your will that we find here in Scripture. Give us the wisdom and understanding to make it a part of our lives. Do that great work in each of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Among the more unusual 
Religious movements in the world are the cargo cults of the South Pacific. Though their origins date back to the 19th century, they experienced a huge upsurge in popularity during World War II. As part of their island-hopping campaign against Japanese forces, the American military often used remote islands as supply depots and air bases. And the dazzling array of modern technological devices that they brought with them, such as airplanes, jeeps, modern weapons, refrigerators, radios, power tools, even cigarette lighters that magically produced fire, all appeared to be supernatural to the islanders. And as a result, some of them concluded that the white men must be gods who flew in out of the sky bearing all these amazing things. Now, eventually, the island bases were abandoned as the fighting drew closer to Japan itself. But the tribesmen found their way of life permanently changed by their exposure to the cargo gods and the gifts they brought. And they built shrines to the cargo gods, often weaving perfect replicas of planes, control towers, and hangars. And they venerated such holy relics as cigarette lighters and cameras and eyeglasses and pens. This is true. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and vainly hoping to bring back the cargo gods, their chiefs uttered magic phrases such as, Roger, over and out, you have landing clearance. The cargo cults still thrive to this day. The biggest one is uh, known as the John Frum cult, as in John from America. That's where the name comes from. And it's headquartered on the island of Tana and Vanuatu, formerly the New Hebrides. Followers of the cargo cults are so passionately consumed with materialism that missionaries find them incredibly difficult to evangelize because they're interested in cargo, not the gospel. And they're still out there. And they have uh, their own permanent collection of anthropologists who are studying them. Incredibly, the cargo cults find a parallel in contemporary Christianity and the word of faith movement, more commonly known as the prosperity or health and wealth gospel. We learned about uh, that false gospel when we went through 2nd and 3rd John. This prosperity movement is, in, fact, in effect, a Western cargo cult, teaching that God delivers tangible, consumable products on demand. Its proponents teach that prayer is a means of self-gratification, a tool for getting houses, cars, clothes, and other cargo. The God of the prosperity movement is little more than a magic genie who exists to grant the materialistic wishes of his followers. And though they don't go to the extremes of the cargo cults or the prosperity movement, Christians in Bible-believing evangelical churches can still pray for the wrong things. Our prayers are way too often shallow, short-sighted, misdirected, and quite frankly, selfish. 
We pray for health, wealth, happiness, comfort, success, a house, a job, a spouse, a promotion, or a raise. Now, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But as I told you last week, if we seek these things without passionately desiring a deeper knowledge of God, then we're selfishly running after God's blessings without running after him. And that's the danger. So we run after God's blessings without running after him. And so while those things aren't necessarily wrong, you don't find them. They're not high on the prayer lists of either Jesus or Paul. The problem of praying for the wrong things is compounded when believers pray for the wrong reasons. James said and warned us in James chapter 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's a verse for our culture. The essence of prayer is not demanding things from God, but listening to discern his will. The deeper believers' prayer lives become, the more they line up with God's will as revealed in Scripture, and the less inclined they are to ask for trivial things. And so if we're going to make any headway in reforming our personal and corporate praying, then we'll have to begin by listening to Scripture and seeking God's help and understanding how to apply that Scripture to our lives and to our church. And so the aim of this series on prayer is simply to work through several of Paul's prayers in such a way that we hear God speak to us today and to find direction to improve our praying both for God's glory and our good. And that's what Paul's writing about here. So let's attend to God's word here in Colossians. And we start by seeing why we pray for you. Why we pray for you. Starting at verse 3, Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It sounds remarkably like last week's passage in 2 Thessalonians. Very similar. Then he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is commending the believers here. And he's saying essentially, look, God is already at work in you. Let me show it to you. I can see the signs of grace in your life. I see examples of faith and love and hope. In fact, when Epaphras came to visit me here in prison, he told me about the faith and the hope and the love which is growing in the church at Colossae. That's proof that God is at work. The Apostle Paul said, look, these things don't come naturally. We may think it's natural to believe, to love, to hope, but Paul knew better. Paul knew you really can't do those things the way God intended unless the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. And the Apostle Paul says, I've heard what's happening in your lives. That's evidence that God's at work. And he says, when I heard that report about what's happening in your midst, about how the Holy Spirit is working in your lives, about your faith, about your love, about your hope, we immediately started praying for you. 
Now that may seem a rather strange response, but there's a great principle here. Every spiritual work is a motivation to pray, not a discouragement for praying. Every spiritual work, that is every work done by the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, is a motivation and encouragement for us to pray. See, so often our prayers are in response to negative things, to disaster, affliction, to difficulty. Of course, that's appropriate. There's no better place to go than to go to God when things are going wrong. But Paul's logic also drove him to pray when he saw God at work. And that's very important for us because we don't tend to think that way. We're quick to pray when life is hard. But when things are going well, we're tempted not to pray at all. We sort of put it on autopilot, let God handle it. He seems to be doing okay. And we sort of presume on his blessings. But not, not Paul. That's not his spiritual logic. His spiritual logic is saying, God's at work. That's a reminder to me to go to him in prayer and ask him to continue and to increase that work. Why? Because Paul knows that prayer is the instrument that God has ordained to bless his people. And so that being said, we need to learn from Paul then how we pray for you. Look at the very beginning of verse 9. How we pray for you. He says, And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you. And the first thing we see here is we need to pray for people we don't know personally. We need to pray for people that we don't know personally. Paul writes, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. In the first prayer we examined last week, 2 Thessalonians, Paul is praying for Christians that he knew personally. In fact, they were Christians uh, in a church that he had founded himself. But here Paul's writing to a church he's never visited. A church founded by Epaphras who's probably led to the Lord through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which we see in Acts 19. And so, although he's never visited them, Paul assures the Colossians he's praying for them. Apparently Paul has added the Colossians to his prayer list, ensuring that he never stops praying for them. And as each new report uh, comes in of God's work in that place becomes another reminder for Paul to keep praying for them. We have to ask ourselves how extensive our own praying is. Do all our prayers revolve around our own family and our own church? Of course, we're primarily responsible for praying for our family and our church. But if that's the farthest reach of our prayers then our prayers may be an index of how small and self-centered our world really is. If we never pray pray for anything other than our family and our church, it's a pretty small world. So it will do us good to fasten on reports of Christians in parts of the world that we've never visited, find out what we can about them, and learn how to intercede with God on their behalf. Just two weeks ago, Anne-Marie Davis led us in an exercise in praying for the persecuted church to do just that, to intercede with God on their behalf. But that's meant to spur you on to pray, not just to mark a -a once-a-year event. And a lot of times we forget about it, and all of a sudden 
It's November again. We have to pray for those people. Oh, I kind of forgot the last 11 months. And we need to remember to be praying for them and people in other places, in other churches. It doesn't have to be far away, but just people we don't know. Second thing we see here is to pray for people regularly. You know, Paul's prayers sound very theological sometimes, but they're always based on people. He prays for people. We've come across this in his prayer life before. Here we find it again. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul's praying is some kind of continual mystical experience or that his claim is a rather bold exaggeration. I think it means that however much Paul uh, pursued his normal activities, he maintained set times for prayer. And in short, Paul's telling the Colossians that since hearing about them, he's made it a point to pray for them, to intercede with God on their behalf in his regular prayer times. And he has not stopped praying for them. And the point to be emphasized here is there are some things for which we should not stop praying. When Paul tells the Colossians that he has not ceased to pray for you, he implies that there are some things for which we must pray over and over and over again. You know, for instance, take an easy example. Christians learn to thank God at each meal for their food. The prayer our Lord taught us uh, to pray assumes that we would ask for food on a daily basis. Give us this day our daily bread. Likewise, it wouldn't do to set aside a time uh, today to ask God to make us holy if we don't return to that request for another year. Asking God to make us holy isn't something that you should pray for just once a year. That should be a regular prayer. You should not stop praying that God would make you holy. And that's the sort of thing that Paul has uh, in mind here. We need some of God's blessings constantly, and so we ask for them constantly, so he constantly meets our need. And Paul tells the Colossians he has not ceased to pray for them. There are certain things that Christians need again and again, constantly, if they're actually going to live as Christians. And for these things, Paul intercedes with his heavenly Father on the Colossians' behalf. And the unceasing nature of his praying serves as a model to encourage us to learn persistence in praying. But perhaps most importantly, it arouses our curiosity. Just what is it, just what uh, does Paul constantly pray for? And he tells us right here. And so we move on and, and learn what we pray for you. You should have why, how, and what so far. What is it that Paul prays for again and again and again on behalf of the Colossian believers as if the supply must be constantly renewed? There's actually only one petition in this prayer. It's just one sentence in the Greek, verses 9 through 14. But it breaks out into various parts. And so the first thing we see in following Paul's example of prayer is that we need to pray for knowledge. Pray for knowledge. 
He says, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, we got to think through what Paul means by the knowledge of his will with which he wants these believers to be filled. Most often we use the expression about the Lord's will or the will of God to refer to God's will for my career or for some aspect of my future that is determined by an impending choice. I don't know what to do. I wish I knew what God's will was for me so I knew what decision to make. And we seek the will of God over whom we should marry, over major changes, major decisions, over when we should move. None of that is bad. That's all good. You should be praying uh, for those things. But nevertheless, our focus can often become misleading. And sometimes it can become even dangerous. Because it encourages me to think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of my future and my needs and my vocation. And that can become just another form of self-centeredness, no matter how piously I phrase it. And worse, it wipes from my thinking the dominant ways in which the Bible speaks of his will. Consider such passages as Psalm 143, verse 10, where the psalmist says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. To do the will of God in this passage is virtually synonymous with obeying what God has mandated. What God has mandated is his will. Our responsibility is to do it. The psalmist here doesn't encourage us to find God's will. He assumes it's already known. And when he says, teach me, he doesn't say, teach me your will, but teach me to do your will. Elsewhere, we're told, Paul's letter uh, to Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In such a context, to understand what the will of the Lord is means that over and against the evil and the folly of the surrounding society where because of uh, laziness or self-indulgence, people are squandering opportunities that the Lord gives them. They're not making the best use of time. Christians are to make the most of every opportunity. We're to make the best use of time to avoid foolishness and thus to show they understand what the Lord's will is. Likewise, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, it sounds good. Give thanks in all circumstances, have all the circumstances in your life been wonderful? Probably not. And I don't see any exceptions here. He doesn't say, except on those really bad days. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. And you know, when some perpetually whining Christian comes to me, not that I'm making judgments... I've been known 
to tell them that I know what God's will is for their life. To give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And quite frankly, it's just dumb to pretend that we need to seek God's will for our life in terms of a, a job move or a marriage partner when there's no desire to pursue God's will as he's already revealed it. You know, people say, I wonder what God wants us to do. Well, he's probably already told us 95%, maybe 98% of what he wants us to do. It's not a big secret. He wrote it down. It's published in whatever language you speak. And so Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Second part of that verse also needs explaining is that phrase, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It sounds very pious and holy. It assumes that spiritual wisdom and understanding are the means by which God fills us with the knowledge of his will. And so the knowledge of God's will consists of wisdom. Wisdom so often in the scripture is tied to knowing how to live. Somebody isn't wise because they're smart. They're wise because of how they live. Their wisdom is seen in how they live. That's how the Bible speaks about wisdom most of the time. It's not, oh, that person's a very wise person. He's smarter than me. It's that person's very wise. I can see it in his life or in her life. She's a wise person. It's obvious. So he says, this knowledge of God's will consists of wisdom, applying scripture to how we live, and understanding of all kinds, particularly at a spiritual level. And so that's what Paul prays for, for the Colossians. And his prayer is motivated in part over their flirtation with the false teachers of their day. Their dangerous tendencies uh, tend to um, end up reducing Christ in importance compared to false teachers and false teachings. You know, anytime some false teacher comes up and he's got some new knowledge or you need him for something special, the Bible isn't enough, and that has the net effect of reducing Christ in importance and putting that person or that teaching in his place. And Paul simply isn't going to tolerate that. He will not have it. The next chapter he writes in Colossians 2, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So he's making this plea that if something comes up that seems to reduce the importance of Christ, that's not a good thing. That's not what you want. And so Paul is praying for what they do want, that they may be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, a knowledge that consists of wisdom and understanding at all uh, levels of all kinds, because how else will they and how else will us uh, withstand the pressures of a surrounding pagan culture, pressures that are as subtle as they are common? And how else will they and how else will us 
will we think biblically and genuinely bring our hearts and minds and lives into conformity with God's will? Is there anything in our own generation uh, that we more urgently need than this knowledge of God and his word and his will? I mean, some churches have chased every fad, scrambled aboard every bandwagon, adopted every gimmick, pursued every encounter with the media. Other churches have rigidly cherished traditions, determined to change as little as possible, and worshiped what is ancient simply because it's ancient. But where are the men and the women whose knowledge of God is as fresh as it is profound? whose delight in thinking God's thoughts after him ensures that their study of Scripture is never a mere intellectual exercise, whose desire to please God outstrips those corrupting desires to shine in public. I mean, after all, man cannot live by bread and jacuzzis alone. We desperately need to meditate on and reflect on and depend on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that need takes on painful urgency when we discover that even within our churches, let alone our country, there are rapidly declining standards of basic Bible knowledge. And that's true. Basic Bible knowledge doesn't ensure the kind of knowledge of God's will that Paul has in mind here. But ignorance of the Bible, the place where God's generously disclosed his will, Ignorance of the Bible pretty well ensures that we won't be filled with the knowledge of God's will, this knowledge that consists of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Small wonder, then, this is something we must constantly pray for, and it's to our great shame that we haven't constantly been praying along these lines. Few needs more urgently demand our intercession before a merciful Heavenly Father than this one. We talked about where the church is growing today in the high school Sunday school class this morning, and we said it's growing in Asia and Africa and Latin America. But the rapid growth of the church in those places, we particularly talked about China and how the church is just exploding there despite the persecution and suffering and affliction that's going on there. And as humbling and as thrilling as that is, the churches in those places will be jeopardized unless it's accompanied by a deepening knowledge of God's will. And in the Western world, where much of the church continues to squander its remarkable heritage and the grace of God, the knowledge of God declines while our fascination with fads and techniques increases. I mean, aren't these good enough reasons to join Paul's prayer that God might fill us with the knowledge of his will? But as always with Paul, knowledge of God's will isn't nearly enough because we have to take that knowledge and do something with it. And so Paul tells us that we have to pray for obedience. Verse 10, pray for obedience. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I've come across this before. Just last week, 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul assured the Christians in Thessalonica that they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. 
But here the language is even stronger because it's personal. The purpose of Paul's praying is that believers might live a life worthy of the Lord. If you think about it, Paul's praying that you might live a life worthy of the Lord. That's an astonishingly high standard. I mean, you could have prayed you could live a life worthy of Dave. It's an astonishingly low standard. You could get away with all kinds of stuff. But of course, that's not how he prays. And Paul then spells it out in case they don't understand just what it means to live a life worthy of the Lord in practical terms. He spells it out. He says, first, he wants them to be fully pleasing to him, pleasing to Jesus. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the Lord. And we would have a better understanding of this, I think, a clearer vision of what this means if we lived in a shame culture. Last summer in one of Rich's sermons, I don't remember which one. I usually wasn't here for him, so I had to listen to him online. But in one of them, he talked about the difference between a shame and a guilt culture. And we live in a guilt culture. And he compared it to Japan, which was a shame culture. But in a shame culture, one of the worst things you can do is bring shame on your family, your clan, your tribe, your people. In a shame culture, people are taught they must be worthy of their family's name, worthy of their country, worthy of their heritage. But by contrast, in the Western world, we don't think in those terms. We don't live in a shame culture. Many Westerners are applauded when they act in stubborn independence of their peers. Rugged individualism pervades Western ideology. But most cultures in the first century were closer to the pattern of a shame culture. But instead of insisting that Christians live up to the church's expectations, our tribe, if you will, Paul tells them they must live up to the expectations of the church's Lord. They're not to live a life worthy of the church. They're to live a life worthy of the Lord. And that would be an immensely powerful plea in a shame culture. In the Western world, uh, we uh, far too often take it as nothing more than just another option. But in Paul's world, to be a Christian, to confess Jesus as Lord, meant to adopt a worldview in which you are bound to please him in every way. And not to do so would be to bring shame on him whom you have confessed as Lord. And so if we're going to join Paul in his prayer, we have to align ourselves with his motives. And we pray this in order that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In thought, word, and deed, in action and in reaction, I must be asking myself, what would Jesus have me do? Not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus have me do? What is speech or conduct worthy of him? And what sort of speech or conduct should I avoid simply because it would bring shame on him? What would please him the most? And if we ask those questions honestly, those simple questions would transform how we work, what we do with our time, how we talk with our parents, spouse, kids, what responsibilities we take on in the church, what we read, how we treat our neighbors, what we do with our money. Transparently, we cannot begin 
to be fully pleasing to Jesus unless God fills us with the knowledge of his will. And conversely, the knowledge of his will is not an end in itself, but has a goal that we would have such Christian maturity that our deepest desire would be to please the Lord Jesus. And Paul goes on to describe what it looks like, what it means to be fully pleasing to him. He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work simply fleshes out what it means to live a life worthy of the Lord. Now, we have to be careful here when we read a passage like that because we have to remember Christians are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is grace you have been saved Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift to God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But God's free grace in our lives has a significant purpose, because the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The kinds of good works demonstrated in the degree of fruitfulness will vary a great deal from believer to believer. But Paul cannot imagine anyone being pleasing to Christ without bearing fruit and good works. And again, his thought can be put the other way around. He prays that believers might be filled with the knowledge of God's will so they might live a life worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. And this means bearing fruit and good works. At the same time, when Paul describes these believers uh, as increasing in the knowledge of God, it seems he's come full circle. He means the knowledge of God's will, knowledge that consists of all spiritual wisdom and understanding that turns in part on obedience, on conformity to the will of God. And to learn something of God's will and to use that knowledge to live a life worthy of the master, to be fully pleasing to him, is to engage in the business of of obedience. It's doing what he says. And as you get busy in the business of obedience, you get to know God better. You get knowledge of God's will, you put it into practice, you know God's better, God better, and you do more of his will. And it just keeps going back and forth, building on each other. However, it's not as easy as it sounds. Bearing fruit and good works looks simple. But it takes persistence and hard work and a good attitude, and we are fully capable of completely screwing it up. And so that's why Paul tells us that we need to pray for endurance. We need to pray for endurance. Verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It's remarkable, and usually the power uh, that Paul prays for is frequently tied to the power of the resurrection. See in Ephesians 1, he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? And so often, Paul ties God's power as seen in the resurrection. You want to know how powerful God is? Look at the resurrection. But its demonstration among believers is not normally found in miracles 
or in their own resurrection, but in great endurance and patience. So there are two things we don't normally pray for because it means that we need to be, have something to endure. We usually don't want that. And it means something that we need to be patient about. We usually don't want that either. And this expression, endurance, all endurance and patience, suggests both the kind of stamina that gets under a burden and carries it with an enduring fortitude, but also the kind of stamina that knows how to possess its soul in patience. These, quite frankly, are not virtues that are very popular in our day and age. We like champagne. Lots of fizz, a pretty good high, but having no nutritional value for the long haul. And in an age when tempers get hot and quick solutions are courted, success is revered, victory is cherished, independence is lauded, easy triumphs are promised, endurance and patience at first glance seem like less than stellar qualities. But the truth is, they are so far beyond human capacity, they require the power of the Spirit of God. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying for. He prays that the Colossians would be strengthened with real spiritual power. He asks, uh, in fact, that they be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I mean, he's hinting at the might, the power, the strength which resides in God himself. And he's saying to these Colossians, I'm praying that you'll be filled with the power of God. No, it's important to note that this is a power outside of the Colossians. It's not a power within the Colossians. He's asking to be increased. It's a power which comes from God and which God gives us and strengthens us with. I mean, if a rich man gave you money, that would be good, but he may not be giving you very much. But if a rich man gave you money in accordance with his wealth, you'd be in for a huge windfall. The Apostle Paul is saying God is going to give you this power in accordance with his glorious might. It's how powerful the power of God is going to be. And it enables us to have endurance and patience that's way beyond our own abilities. It's not to be confused with mere physical stamina. These virtues enable believers to survive with joy when persecuted, to triumph in self-control when insulted, to trust God's providence when suffering. And when Jesus sees these virtues in us, he is pleased. He is pleased. Finally, to close out his list, Paul tells us that we need to pray with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. Verses 12 through 14. Because of this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, because of this walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good works, because of this endurance and patience, we're to be giving thanks to the Father. Not to give thanks would be a mute testimony to a catastrophic loss of perspective. To give thanks, to give thanks with joy, is to remember, look at what he says here. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This week, probably somebody will ask you what you're thankful for. This would be a pretty good answer if you can't think of anything else. And think about it. If God perceived that our greatest need was economic or financial, he'd have sent us an economist. If he perceived our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent an entertainer. If he perceived our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. And what Paul is saying is that to live a life worthy of Jesus Christ is to overflow with thanksgiving in light of the salvation that we've received. If in fact... We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, then our only appropriate response is gratitude. Paul prays constantly that these Christians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And then he tells them the purpose of his prayer. He wants them to live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul assumes that such a life is utterly impossible unless there's a growing spiritual grasp of what God's will is. And he fleshes out such expressions as worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to him with some concrete characteristics of Christians who live this way. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just a typical list. But it's no less revolutionary. Christians, he says, bear fruit in every good work. And they grow in the knowledge of God. And they're strengthened by God's power so as to, to display great endurance and great patience. And they joyfully give thanks to the Father for this astonishing salvation that he has given them through the Son he loves, Jesus Christ. When was the last time you prayed like that. It's an amazing prayer. And it's easy to skip over. It just sounds so pious. But that's how Paul prays, and there's real stuff in there that he's praying for. This prayer of Paul's fits neatly into the categories uh, for prayer that I gave you last week. And I want to review them again. And I'll probably do it again and again so that these will get burned into you. Three emphasis of biblical prayer. Circumstantial prayers, wisdom prayers, and kingdom prayers. Circumstantial prayers, sometimes we ask God to change our circumstances. Heal the sick. Give us daily bread. Protect us from suffering and harm. Make our political leaders just. Convert my, my friends and family. Make our work and ministries uh, prosper. Provide me with a spouse. Quiet this dangerous storm. Send us rain. Give us a child. 
Sometimes we ask God to change us, what I'm calling wisdom prayers. Deepen our faith. Teach us to love each other. Forgive our sins. Make us wise where we tend to be foolish. Make us know you better. Enable us to sanctify you in our hearts. Don't let us dishonor you. Don't let us shame you. Give us understanding of Scripture. Teach us how to encourage others. And then sometimes we ask God to change everything. I'm going those kingdom prayers. And to change everything by revealing himself more fully on the stage of real life, magnifying the degree to which his glory and sovereign rule are obvious. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let your glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Come, Lord Jesus. And when any of these three get detached from the other two, prayer tends to go sour. If you just pray for better circumstances, is what we most commonly do, then God becomes an errand boy and usually somewhat disappointing who exists to give you your shopping lists of desires and pleasures. There's no sanctifying purpose, no higher glory. If you pray only for personal change, it tends to uh, become an obsession with moral self-improvement, a self-absorbed spirituality detached from an engagement with other people and with the tasks that uh, need doing in life. And where is the longing for Christ's kingdom to right all wrongs? not just to alleviate my sins so I don't feel bad about myself. If you only pray for the sweeping invasion of the kingdom, prayer tends towards irrelevance and overgeneralization, failing to walk out in our lives how the actual kingdom rights real wrongs and wipes away real tears and removes real sins. And such prayers pursue a God who never touches ground until the last day. We need all three strands in this prayer, this cord of three strands that are braided together out of our real need. Pray this way. Use all three of these. It's okay to pray for circumstances, but not just that. Pray that God would change you. Pray that God would change everything. Teach others to pray the same way. And they will do that. And they'll pray in a noticeably different way for you and for others, even if they don't know them personally. And I pray that through these prayers, God would enable you to know him more and to know the knowledge of his will. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close.